Welcome to this week in Spchkling Water. Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if I found a way to work in the, the sound into the word sparkling? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe episode 200. Maybe by episode 200, I will have figured something like that out. Man, what if I could figure stuff like that out? Because I can't. But hey, don't worry about me, man. I'm doing good. You know, I had nine hours of sleep. I get nine hours of sleep most of the time, a little bit of exercise, 10 minutes of meditation, maybe a vegetable juice, maybe a little bit of sex, maybe you go for a drive, watch 30 minutes of TV, only 30 minutes, listen to a little bit of music, not too much, get some fresh air, walk around a little bit. You know, I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. The thing is, man, I really want to talk about music. But the problem is that the music I want to talk about is rap music. And my entire life, me and my buddy Sebastian, we grew up and we listened to a lot of rap music. And sometimes in Swedish media, like this, sometimes it's hard to explain stuff about Sweden. This one is not going to be hard to explain. This one is going to come real easy to all y'all. Sometimes in like a Swedish newspaper, which is in Swedish, written by Swedes, there will be like a review of a rap album. And it's like, it's like, guy, 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 do you know how white you are? <laughs> it's like, it's like, guy, have you, do you know, do you know how white you are? The whites. Yeah, you know, the. so that one. That one is one where I feel like I feel like one thing that people do understand about Sweden that I don't really have to explain too much is that the people are very white. These are white people we're dealing with. So <laughs> there was this specific there was this specific um oh god, there was this specific what was his fucking name? I don't remember his name. Uh but there was a a, a music journalist at uh at Kvelsposten or something that would write, especially he he that guy would write uh, reviews of rap albums and his claim i mean his street cred was mostly based on how everyone is white but he was like a little bit unshaven his face was a little bit he had a little bit of stubble so because he had a little bit of stubble he, he thought he could review rap music it's like i don't know if i'm explaining that part very well but but there's in sweden because everyone is white sometimes if you have black hair it's like like in the 90s, if you had black hair, that would be something people would be racist towards you about. You know, because people, like we have this idea that racism is going to go away if we all just kind of like have sex with each other and create all these like mixed race babies where everyone is kind of brown. Kind of brown. And that is like the most racist white people shit idea ever. Because racism is like, racism is fucking timeless, bro. That is the most unenlightened idea ever. Anyway, moving on. The point of saying all of that is that I really want to talk about rap music because I've been hearing all these great new albums, but it's like I'm so white. So I think the only way to do it is to lean into the whiteness and be like be like this. This is the thing. This is what I – here's a few thoughts. Um, there's a fun parallel between like um, – so one album that I've been listening to uh, recently a lot is, it's an album called Drillmatic by The Game. And there's a fun parallel. It's just really fun to compare that album with the writings uh, of Emil, Z 
Emile Zola. So um, he was like this 1800s French writer, right? Paris. He's in Paris. And he's sort of a, inventing this new school of writing, like a new literary genre. Because there was the Renaissance, and the Renaissance triggered all these different things, like romanticism and stuff, where people would just write poetry about how fucking beautiful everything was. And there's some quality to any every new school of thought that it that it has a sort of um, oppositeness to the last one, and he um, he was he was big. His thing was naturalism, and the oppositeness of it is that it it was really focused on disgust, the feeling of disgust, and I think the feeling of disgust is fucking fascinating, because I think it's so powerful and interesting what you can do with disgust. And so, like, when he was writing about war, he was sort of, like, politically left-wing. Not that that really maps on to, like, what politically left-wing is today, but, but he was sort of anti-war and stuff. And when he wrote an anti-war novel, the novel was all about, like, he would just sit page after page just, like, describing wounds, just, like, dis- describing festering fucking wounds and, like you know, amputations without anesthesia, just like disgust, just like describing this really disgusting shit. And then the logic of that is like, if you really, if you really like spend a lifetime learning how to trigger disgust in people, then you will, then you can influence them with, you can influence them to do something. And for example, like, um, you know, be anti-war. And then there was, you know, he used it in in a lot of different things. Like there was this other sort of like anti-capitalist writing where he he just like described, I can't, I think, yeah, he wrote a book called Germinal, Yaminal, where it's like, the book is about this 50-year-old miner and he like describes his like swollen joints and his hacking cough and like his, charcoal blackened phlegm it's all about fucking phlegm and stuff and it's supposed to be this thing about like how the capitalist mining system just sort of eats up human flesh and spits out fucking money and power just greed like what greed what un what what uncontrollable greed does to a human body in the capitalist system and it's just like gross fucking mucus and fucking bodily fluids and just bodily fluids and disgust. And it's just like, I don't know. In a way, I feel like a a really, um, I feel like a quintessential Swede because it is true that this school of thought or like this literary genre, um, naturalism was sort of born in France and then it was sort of picked up by Scandinavians. Like Scandinavians, for some reason, in the 1900s, in the early 1900s, became fascinated with it and turned it into this like social realism that's also very like politically left-wing. And it's so, um, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, sometimes it's it's fine to just feel predictable, to just feel like I am just one of my people. And for some reason, I don't know why, my people are, 
my people learned that from the French and we do it and we're fascinated with it and we respect it and we talk about it. And then when you play me a fucking rap album, that is the lens through which I view it. Um, and so I'm listening to this The Game album. Now, look, The Game, honestly, he is not as famous as he should be. Like, The Game is up there, dude. Because The Game is like, I don't know, man. I don't know why he never had a moment the way all these other rappers did. Because he is so, it's so natural to him. Like, the whole thing comes so fluidly to him. Like, he, he, he it, every part of it, and, and the, the struggle for a lot of rappers is that there's so many parts of being, of making a good rap song that they they forget, they always forget about some part, but every part is like completely essential. So like you have these like really good back in the day Eminem songs, like, like The Way I Am is a good Eminem song from like early in his career. And it has just like, quality to it of like rhythm where he's like dun, 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 and it's like it has this like this like rhythmic jazzy aggressive jazz quality to it but then later in his career Eminem just sucks so bad because he just remembers the actual um words and rhymes and it's like honestly bro no one really cares about the rhyming if it's just a bunch of rhyming and it has no musicality to it and it has no rhythm and it's just way too much technical. Like it's just technically correct, very high level rap that doesn't know. Yeah, sure. It's very high level, but no one wants to listen to it. If you know what I'm saying? It's like there's this story by um, Rick Rubin described how Rick Rubin in this one interview was talking about different rappers and how they have all these like completely no overlap in their very different styles and how Jay-Z has this like super jazzy style of just going in there and and just not writing anything down just like being very focused on the musicality of it and having a very very good memory and then Eminem is his complete opposite where he would just always fill notebooks with rhymes and all the notebooks are like rhymes he will never use, but he has to just do it because the craft of it, the technique needs to stay active. So he needs to always be doing it. So he needs to like fill 10 notebooks with handwritten rhymes. And then when he is so lean from having done it so much recently, he can then sit down and write a song because he just filled 10 notebooks with practice. And it's like so true for every form of art in a very like beautiful universal way. Like I remember my buddy Ingrid when she, she used to illustrate like 15 years ago when we were living in Sweden, she wanted to be an illustrator or she was an illustrator and she would illustrate a lot. And sometimes she would be um, sort of commissioned by a little magazine to be like, just get, get me some doodles. And they'd give her some themes about what the different stories in the magazine was like, was about. So she would like, there would be like, come up with five different doodles for us, for these five stories. Um, so that this issue of the magazine can have a cohesiveness that each story has like a, a similar style doodle with each story, right? It's very nice. So then Ingrid would have that assignment and the way she would attack it would be that she would schedule herself to wake up at 9 a.m. or to start doing it at 9 a.m. and do it until 2 p.m. 
just illustrating, just drawing, just ink on paper drawing, line drawings, six hours or five hours. And then the sixth hour or like the fifth, like from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. After five hours of just doing it, she'd be like, and now after five hours of just drawing, I will actually start with the assignment. And it's like, that's so fascinatingly true to me for all forms of art that you have to just keep doing it. And it's not enough to do it five hours and then the sixth hour, now you're good. You have to just like do it every day. You have to like live and breathe whatever it is that you're doing, which is like, somehow I can see that in a hopeful way and in a pessimistic way. But anyway, the point of all of that is like the game, he has this thing where like the technique, <laughs> this sort of Eminem style technique it's so high level. Like he has this one song called 300 Bars and Running where it's just like a, how long is it? I mean, it's probably like a 25 minute song with no chorus, nothing. It's just like this aggressive ass beat and he just, it's just going in for 25 minutes. Very little breathing, you know? Very little, um, no pausing, just going at it. And it's just like this, a very sort of, um, it's like an exhibition game. <laughs> it's like a soccer exhibition game where it's like, yeah, I know this is not a song anyone is going to listen to, but I'm just going to show you guys that if I wanted to, I could just go for 30 minutes straight. And it's all like, none of it is mumbled. None of it is like poorly executed. It's all like very perfect cadence, like perfect. It's all very, the technique stays on point for 25 minutes. So there's that part of it that he's really good at, but then he's also really good at the musicality of it. And he has such like great awareness of these different modalities and forms where he will take like one of these ridiculously fast songs and then he will have it followed with like a really, really slow song where it's like there's just a five word sentence that he sort of slowly says over and over. And it's about the incredible like sound and texture of each syllable. Like how all these different consonants have like a different choppiness to them. And the different M and N noises have different like round sounds to it. And like the, the sort of sonic textured roller coaster quality of just like a poetic sentence. And how it's not about like the incredibly complicated, very fast rhyming or whatever. Like he never forgets about all the different components that are all essential. And then, so why I bring him up is that, so he made this album dramatic. And it's one of these things where like, you listen to the first song and the second song and the third song. And it's like, it's almost impossible to get to the fourth song because when you're on the third one, you just have to go back to the second one. Cause it's just like, so good, dude. It's so good. But there's so much like um, playing around with the feeling of disgust. Yeah. I don't know. I'm talking about it and it's like, it, it, it's funny because, um, <laughs> it's funny because it's like, can a white person read rap lyrics out loud? Can that work? It's kind of doomed to fail. But I was thinking, there's this one part that I'm, let me, let me try to read this out loud. He's, he has this one song called Voodoo, where first of all, the beat is just, it's incredible because it's, I'm so fascinated with um, people that can find songs that you can pitch up or down and have them become something different and have them become beautiful. Because taking 
someone's singing, a human being singing, and pitching it up so that it becomes like the chipmunk version of it is so incredibly off-putting to me. And I hate it so much as a stylistic thing. I, I hate the way it's, I hate it so much that any time someone can find a way to do it in a way where it's like you just captured the gentle, you can't even really hear the words anymore. You just captured like an interesting melody and you pitched it up and really you lost, you in a big way you lost the quality of how the voice is a voice and now it's just like this melody instead. And when you can find someone's like if you can find snippets of human singing that can be pitched up or down to be beautiful i'm super fascinated with that because for some reason i'm trying to make like little beats and that's the thing i've been trying to do i've been trying to listen to stuff and and then like pull them out of their context and then pitch them up or down and then see how they sound and i've done it like hundreds of times and none none of it sounds good and when you've tried something hundreds of times and failed every time you develop this you develop this like very very profound respect for someone who managed to do it successfully even once and then people who managed to do it successfully many times it's like okay well you know hats off hats off but anyway so the beat is an example of that where they've taken like someone's already existing song voodoo by some guy with an unrememberable name, you know? Just like these weird letter combinations that some of these... I, I love, <laughs> I don't know, like some of these gang member dudes that where it's like each part of the fucking name is some gang affiliation thing. Anyway, uh, so the beat is is so beautiful and simple and dark. And then he's just talking about like raising his kids in the ghetto and this like very... About having to like really just wanting to make money to take care of his kids. And it's just like this really, there's just all this imagery that's really, I don't know, It's I find it very evocative. There's this one part that goes like this. So I got to step my performance up because all the grocery stores are out of formula and my baby mama can't breastfeed because her mammogram would suggest she got stage three and stage fright. So I stayed up all these late nights and I cook, I clean, I change diapers like a mother would. Baby shit had me throwing up. Baby shit had me throwing up. It's like baby shit had me throwing up. It's just such different imagery than... I don't know. There's something about rap music where like they've figured out certain stuff that works. So everyone just relies on the exact same stuff about talking about drugs and guns and stuff. And it's so incredibly uninteresting. And it's like everyone just talks about drugs and guns or whatever and confidence. Everyone, it's just like you just talk about stuff in a confident way in it with musicality and then you just call it rap music and it's like you add so little but there's something like this song and then later he's like he he just goes fucking on top of bed bugs dirty sheets cum stains blood stains washing powder ten dollars each can't wash the money because we're out of bleach and it's like not even full sentences full, full sentences these are just these are just these fragments, it's very like, I don't know, the whole thing of just just going minute after minute speaking to like one image 
where everything is like every song is just contributing to this like one image like the whole al album is just like one image with different tempo and like sometimes you slow down and talk about the same image and sometimes you speed it up and talk about the same image but it's like one image that's like so incredibly that can get so incredibly beautiful when you because you give yourself so much space to take an entire album to just build towards this like one sort of image and then to take so to play around so much with the feeling of disgust and um i think it's so like respectful and beautiful how the album is called drillmatic which is clearly like a reference to the nas album like the 1991 92 whatever some early 90s time um illmatic because illmatic is like this widely considered to be just this incredible like snapshot painting of just like low-income neighborhood in New York, you know? Just fucking Queensbridge, you know? And it's like the album just starts with this like gritty, simple New York beat and it just keeps going forever and it's just like one image and it's so, it's like romantically beautiful about all this shitty stuff. And it's just these fragmented sentences of just throwing out descriptors of things you see. And it can be, it can be such a like incredibly evocative style to not even make it, to not worry about fucking sentences, to just have it be, it's like really poetry, you know? Like it's really much more, um, much more poetry than prose, really. And, but I'm so, and then the, but, 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 um, yeah, I mean, Nas really does the social realism thing, but the game really adds this, like, disgust layer where it's all just so disgusting. It's all just fucking nostrils and and fucking snot and gross shit. Everything is just about phlegm and fucking bodily fluids and fucking, you know, you take a sound bath and fucking blood and someone shot you and you're just laying there and it's just, you're just... You're just in a sound bath and blood, and then you realize it's someone else's blood, and you weren't shot. And they, and it's just like this. Do you know? It's all bad, you know. But there's something, I don't know. There's, I'm just fascinated with disgust. I really, um, oh god. And when I wrote a novel, I really, there's some. I don't know. I really leaned. In, I really tried to unpack disgust. I tried to make it really fucking disgusting. And it's really, un like you can do, uh, disgust is really hard to control what you're doing with it because it can push you in any direction. Like on the one hand, Emile Sola has this thing of like, yeah, I'm gonna dis describe the disgusting body of this miner, and then you're gonna hate capitalism. I'm gonna, I'm gonna describe these disgusting wounds, and then you're gonna hate war. But there's also like this opposite thing where like disgust is political. It's the craziest fucking thing. But like there's really, really a large body of research. Stop me if you've heard this already. There's a large, well-established body of research showing that if you are dispositionally more sensitive to disgust, if you feel disgusted easily, it's it's very probable that you are politically conservative. Like both 
self-identify as conservative and on issues. Like, isn't that such a fucking crazy... Like, and your, your voting habits. Like, isn't that such a crazy um, correlation that, like, you can show people, you know, pieces of poop. You just bring test subjects into a room, a thousand of them, and you show them all pieces of poop. And then you, like, I don't know, offer them food or something. And if they're so disgusted now that they can't eat, then the the... the probability that they are people who are voting for lowering taxes is very high. Like, what kind of a crazy correlation is that? And it's, like, super well-established and completely real. And then you can obviously weaponize that thing. So it's, like, in the 90s when they were trying to uh, reform welfare, basically, like, ending welfare. Like, the welfare, the welfare state in America was way stronger before the 90s. Like, what they built in the 40s and 50s, like, in the post-war era was, like, a proper, strong, you know, the New Deal shit. Everything was building on everything. And they just had a good social safety net for workers. And they really, like, the middle class was in good shape in America for decades. And then in the 90s, they really dismantled it. And it was, like... I Oh, God, I read this one article about how that was really a process of weaponizing disgust because you tell people and show people and convince people about this idea of like, for example, like poor African-American mothers and you make them disgusted with poor African-American mothers who, who are on welfare Oh, I just burped a little bit right there. Very like meta, very meta to burp a little bit in the middle of talking about disgust and stuff. Um, and so you can take, you can get disgust, like you can you can trigger disgust in people and get them to like disgust is political, but disgust as a the politics of disgust can cut both ways, you know. It can be weaponized by the left and it can be weaponized by the right. So it's very sort of like um, fluid what you're really doing when you're just like trying to trigger disgust in someone. And it's really just sort of very experimental. But there's something contrarian about it. There's something beautiful and rebellious about it. I just find it like, I don't know. I'm just into it, man. I'm into, I think disgust is like, I don't know. I just I just find it um I just really respect people that don't just go Barbie movie with everything, you know, cuz it's there's something so easy about making everything like nice. There's something so obvious there. And then this album also, it's like it plays around the dramatic album. It plays around with disgust, but it's also just like literally telling me things I don't know. Like teaching me things I don't know. Like it's such a stark and clear and well-painted painting that it's like showing like I'm learning new things like there's this logic of there's this one part where it's like <laughs> it's literally like one part of it is like it's almost like a voicemail where some woman is talking about I don't know it sounds like a voicemail but it's maybe a woman on a panel or some shit and she's talking about how um, 
how women in the ghetto need to stop exaggerating about shit just because they feel disrespected. And she's like, stop calling people, dude. You get into an argument with someone on the block and then just leave it there, man. Stop calling people. Because when you call people and you exaggerate just because your feelings got hurt, then, you know, if you run your mouth a bunch, then now everyone's going through it all summer, you know? People get shot. And it's just like this interesting dynamic that I'm like, oh, huh. So that's part of that's part of how it goes down, huh? That it's like, Someone gets in a little argument. Because then when you've been presented with this idea, you can kind of see it. Like someone gets in a little argument on the street. And then they feel kind of disrespected. So then they call all their friends and exaggerate how much they were disrespected. And then those people go and shoot someone. And then those people who now had their friend get shot, they fucking go back and shoot some more people then. And then now you're going through it all summer, man. And it's like... It's like Barack Obama-style respectability politics because it's like a white person could not make that point. A white person could not say, hey, black people, stop just killing each other. But like a black per- person can zoom in on can zoom in on some like little part of the chain reaction and be like, which link in this chain reaction here should really have acted different? Because when you just have a bigger, better, granular knowledge of your own community, you can like zoom in on the whole chain reaction and know which links are just really sort of like acting the way they have to act. You know, the disagreement that between Ta-Nehisi Coates and Barack Obama where Ta-Nehisi Coates is really like focus on the structural sh- shit and how it's fucking meaningless to try to tell black people to be, to, you know solve their own problems because there are so many societal structural problems holding them down you know you can't get a fucking you can't get a loan from the bank to buy a house because you're black and then barack obama is like yeah but we gotta we gotta figure out some shit in our own communities and there's like this disagreement and the disagreement is clearly like both people have good points and barack obama will make points about it's a very, the game does a very Barack Obama style respectability politics argument. Like there's, you can go even further out on the, on the fucking spectrum beyond Barack Obama. And then you get to Bill Cosby. And Bill Cosby was always like, oh, black people, stop complaining. Solve your own fucking problems in your own community, you know? But that's not a man with good points, you know? That's a man where having shitty political points correlated with being a rapist. You feel me? Like, that's not a man with that's making good points. That's a man making bad points. And, uh, but then, these, these songs on the Drillmatic album, it's like, oh God. It's just so fucking interesting. There's just so much interesting shit going on there. So hard to get past the first three songs. Now, the crazy thing is that there's... So there's this other album, Scarlet, by um, Doja Cat. It's new. Exactly the same um, dynamic where the fir- tons of songs on this album, bro. But the first three songs are so good that it's almost impossible for me to get to the fourth song. Because when I try to listen through it, I'm like, dude, I got to go back to the first song. It's just so catchy. She just has all this catchy shit going on. It, all of her songs are so catchy. 
And like, this is a person who politically is incredibly like interesting and just newfangled, man. This is an inventor. Like this woman is inventing shit. This is new shit that we've never seen. Like there's this one song where, <clears throat> so first of all, rappers are always talking about drip. And it's such a boring phrase. And they're always like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I'm like a melting ice cube. I got so much drip. And drip just means whatever fucking expensive shit you got on or whatever, you know? You have an expensive watch on, that's drip. Worst, like most overused, terrible phrase that every shitty rapper has entire songs just going on and on about like the fucking how, you know... Just weird new phrases of trying to use the word drip in an interesting way and failing. And then and then Doja Cat goes, okay, this has multiple layers, but let's just start on layer one here. I'm listening to it and Doja Cat goes, I bring that drip with this red vagina. And bro, that is some startling imagery. Like that is startling. That is jarring. That's like, oof. it It's... Uh, it catches you. It catches you off guard. And I just think it's like so powerfully beautiful because it's so like, um, here disgust is something else because it's like, it's like period positive. Like if, oh God, yeah, where do we go with this? Um, like a lot of it is sex positive. A lot of Dedosha Cat stuff is sex positive where it's like a woman taking control of her sexuality and like um, just talking about her own fucking enjoyment of stuff. And and sex positive, you know, it's great. We all like it and everything, but you can't really compete with like Cardi B on sex positive because Cardi B has like rappers are always coming, trying to come up with new ways of sounding confident, talking about something in a confident way. And it's difficult to come up with new things. And it's very lazy and possible. And people do, like, you can make, you can build an entire career without, without doing anything new. You can just sort of reuse these confident tropes of the stuff we already have. So it's very fresh and cool how Cardi B definitely found a new way to like unpack and flesh out. Flesh out is a really sort of like um, off-putting term when you're talking about Cardi B's song, Wet Ass Pussy. How to flesh out, how to flesh out. Anyway, um, oh God. I just think I lost control of this now, but but it just the the point is like Doja Cat takes it another level because being not just sex positive but being period positive is like this deeply literary, incredibly meaningful uh, fight that we need to fight. It reminds me. So there's this. There's this podcast I listened to called Period, where um, they were talking about this one, this lady was talking about this book called Blood Magic, which is about the anthropology of periods, basically, and how it's looking at, oh, there's so much interesting stuff there. It's just looking at how people look at periods across the world, and how in Western society, there's always been this like baked in assumption that there has been, that there is a 
a taboo around periods, like that that's universal. But convincing people that everyone around the world has a lot of taboo around your period and the imagery of period and the 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 feelings and the time period and all of it is like a way of subjugating women and a way to like, I don't know, it's like a way for male fear to turn into, um, you know, subjugation of women. And, and um, <clears throat> in this book, Blood Magic, they just look all over the world and it's really like you can pick your own fucking imagery and there's other stuff going on. And in a lot of places, just blood is really considered this like powerful thing because it is our essence. And women bleeding is like this powerful thing that's viewed as women being more powerful than men because they like have all this essence, you know? And I also really like how the book Blood Magic gets written by nine women. And it's like there's something... When you get down to the, like, there's something interesting about the turf debate, because J.K. Rowling, I listened to that J.K. Rowling podcast, and I, I was listening to it, and it really, I thought the podcast, it's called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. I talked about it a bunch in some episode, but there was something about it where, I, I first of all, it's a very good podcast, and I recommend it, and it's it really allows J.K. Rowling to make her point and then in the end you really don't agree with her because you think the other points are better but at the same time when you're on sort of when you're zoomed out not even the not even the points of this like trans YouTuber who makes really good points there was something about it that didn't fully make sense to me but it starts to make so much sense when you or like the whole thing get makes so much sense when you actually get down to talking about specific things. And when you're talking about menstruation and like who should be, or no, no who, who, not who should be allowed, but what book on menstruation do I want to read? And the, the book I want to read is a book written by nine people who have menstruated. And in this case, I don't really care about how you identify gender-wise. I don't really care if you're a trans woman. It's just like one of these cases where like, if you're a trans woman, I'm gonna go ahead and not read your book on menstruation. I'm gonna go ahead and read the book on menstruation written by like, um, menses havers, you know? I, I almost, I almost was, oh God, I, I was almost canceled there because I almost accidentally said real women, which is not something I mean because I actually, yeah, I don't believe, like I don't think any of it is real, you know? I don't think gender exists and I don't think, I don't think real women exist. I don't think real men exist. No, none of it is real. And and it's really use, useless to try to talk about like what is the real of anything and who has the right to do anything. The only thing that makes sense is when you actually get down to issues and when you actually get down to real conversations about something. Get me the get me the book on menstruation written by nine anthropologists who have boobs and and they bleed once a month, you know, and have them talk about it. And I would love to listen to them about it, you know. Have those people travel around, you know? Go to North Borneo, you know? Talk to some fucking African farmers. Talk to some Welsh housewives. 
talk to fucking post-industrial American workers and and ask around and figure out how, like, where is there and isn't there menstrual taboo? And talk about the different imagery because there's also this, I don't know, there's something in like old school, sort of pre-Christian or early Christian. Like there were these pre-Christian beliefs that were very cool um, surrounding gender, where like women had a role and it was different than the male role, but it was like a very powerful role and there was a lot of magic and there was a lot of power and belief and all these folkloric rituals in sort of pre-Christian Northern Europe and Germanic fucking tribes and shit. And then when they were Christianized, when the Christianization of Scandinavia and stuff meant that all of that was supposed to go away, but it instead turned into like this thing that's really Satanism. Like it's really a thing where it it just became the other. It became the thing that's not Christianity. And from a Christian gaze and from a, a mainstream Christianity that was allowed to put labels on stuff, it was labeled as demonic and like, yeah, you know, witchy, Satanisty, 666, you know? And then that's the tradition here. Like that's how we ended up with Doja Cat because that never really went away because it was always this thing of women exercising their power and trying to sit with themselves and sit with their own bodies and be just trying to live, bro. It was always women just trying to live and everyone's trying to shit on them and everyone's trying to fuck everything up for them and everyone's trying to make a society where we just like, there's taboo around everything around your body and you have to fucking apologize for everything and you're fucking catcalled and it's your own fucking fault. I don't know, man. Symbolism matters, you know? Symbolism matters and making everything taboo matters and making, you know... Having the male, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. I feel like, now I feel like a fucking, now I feel like a beta fucking libtard here, but but that's that's what's up, you know? Oh, God. Dude, I listened to this really good podcast yesterday that I really recommend about, um, it's like so interesting when you listen to a podcast where when you listen to people talk and you you actually mostly disagree with them, but they are very, very well read and and give you so much real information. And they have like such a fully structured, internally logical um, viewpoint that it's just like, it gives you something, even though you disagree in the end. It was called, um, it's the Sam Harris podcast where he interviews Yasha Monk. It's the most recent episode. It's called The Roots of Identity Politics. And it's like, they just, Yasha Monk wrote this book on um, really sort of the history of ideas um, on identity politics. I guess I just found it cool because it really goes into Michel Foucault and how Foucault is like this, like the real postmodern, like the actual, um, like true postmodernist. And then everyone who came after him was like kind of lost it, but he just like really had it. He had he was the real it girl of postmodernism, and how like in all of his writing, the point is always like that whatever whatever thought and like whatever ism 
whatever viewpoint there is, you can sort of criticize it to bits so it breaks down. And then you will form your own viewpoint and it will be a reaction to that previous viewpoint. But your viewpoint will also suck. So it's like he's the most apolitical person because like the politics of anything will always be destroyed and replaced by its own, not opposite, like something that's very different from it that you came up with because it's a reaction to what it was and your thing will suck too. So he's like the only guy who like never fucking had his own thing because he was just like, and so much writing about like how he's just the first guy to really sort of unpack how institutional power is one thing, but really symbolism and just like dialogue, like what we talk about discourse, controlling discourse, controlling the public conversation is more powerful than institutions. Like the consensus is more powerful than the precedent. And it's just like, God, I, it's the way it's true. You know, it's true. And, and, um, and that's why Doja Cat is not precedent. She's instead making this album. And that is a way to influence the world. And it's, yeah, I don't know. Every, it's just, I just love, like the, the, the podcast I listened to about period, the episode was called Blood Coming Out of Her Wherever. <laughs> and it wasn't even about that. But that's like what Trump said about Megyn Kelly. When he didn't like the way she fucking handled the debate or whatever. She's like, oh, she's so angry. Blood coming out of her whatever. And it's like, it's so gentle. I love this gentleness. Because it's like, I don't know. He, he was like, yeah, it's like blood coming out of her eyes, out of her nose, you know. But the also thought is like blood coming out of her hoo-ha because she's on her period. Because she's a bitch and she's a woman. Fuck her. My name's Trump. Fuck Megyn Kelly. She's so pretty, though. Megyn Kelly is so pretty. Um, anyway, yeah, so that also makes me think of the thing of the Doja Cat thing where she goes, I bring that drip with this red vagina. I looked up the lyrics, and she doesn't say red vagina. She says wet vagina, which brings it back to this fucking bullshit that it's just sex positive. It's not actually period positive. But I refuse to really believe that. And I want to just live in my world where she says red vagina. And I really think she mumbles it in a way where you, it's really subliminal. I really believe this. No, but I want to believe this. I don't believe this, but I want to believe this. I want to believe that she just does this thing on purpose where she wouldn't, I don't know, she like sneaks it in there subconsciously you you it gets mumbled and it's like red vagina and it's like you know oh god every time i'm talking about how shitty rappers don't invent anything new who i'm really thinking about is migos okay let me google this migos drip what do they say about drip yeah i mean god damn it i mean they made a song called drip where they say 30 times in a row they repeat the line Came through dripping. Drip, drip. <laughs> it's like, K, great job, you guys. <laughs> Came through dripping. Drip, drip. <laughs> 
it's like, okay, never say that again. Or like, oh, I don't even know, man. I don't even know what to say about that. It's just so one-dimensional. And then you have, <clears throat> and then you have Doja Cat. And it's like, yeah, I, I think the whole album is just on the cusp of, it's, she, she says, I bring that drip with this wet vagina, but it almost sounds like red vagina. But then in the videos, all the videos, she's just completely covered in blood. And the whole thing is just on the cusp of sort of gently making you think of period blood. And there's something so like, like here it's like powerful. What, what is it here? Here the disgust and here the feeling of disgust is used to reclaim one's body. Like sometimes you have to go, <clears throat> if you're in prison and you want to just be over there, sometimes you have to, to break out of the prison of the mind, you have to travel a thousand miles just so that everyone has the right to be over there instead of in prison. Like that's how the, the prison of the mind works. That to, to break out of this prison of like gender and expectation and fucking all the limitations of a conservative gaze, um, you have to be so fucking weird and then you will sort of destroy the framework and then everyone else can just open their eyes for the first time and just be, have whatever haircut they want. So she, Doja Cat's kind of crazy looking, you know? Doja Cat's kind of crazy looking and, and it's not because she thinks crazy looking is the prettiest. It's because she's hearkening back to a long history of like the sort of rebellious stream of thought in fucking 16th century, recently Christianized Germany and France and Sweden of women who just fucking had to destroy everything and have sex with the village pastor to prove that they couldn't be, like to, to break free of the in incredible constraints of the world that they grew up in. And that's why she's in the video cover, co just dripping with blood, you know? just dripping with blood and she's got Satan on her side and they're dancing and it's, and the, the fucking songs are so catchy, dude. The songs are so catchy. Like the first song in the album. Ooh, it's so good. She's like, ooh, she's a devil. The songs are so catchy. And then, yeah, you, you have to be really fucking weird looking. It, it reminds me of the, there's this Instagram account. There's this fella on, on Instagram that I'm following. His name is, his Instagram handle is Alok V Menon. I don't know what his actual name is, but he's just like this, I don't know, maybe he's just kind of a gay guy, but like he is a little bit trans and he just has a lot of fucking chest hair and he wears dresses and he wears a lot of makeup and he dyes his hair in all these like rainbowy colors and he's kind of beautiful. I don't know if he, him is his pronouns, honestly, but it's just, I just really recommend it because like I recommend following his account because there's, he, he just puts up these videos of himself sitting on panels and it's so consistent like it's so interesting how his 
his viewpoint, the, the point that he makes is always the same point, but it's such a contrarian and different point that every time I hear it, even though I've heard it, him make the same point so many times, every time it's so far away from the point that's usually being made in the world that every time it feels like a fresh point. Every time it feels like I'm hearing it for the first time because it's so different. And so the point is just this. I saved down one of his comments once because I wanted to say this. Like, the point is just this. He will wear a fucking, you know, sequins dress with a lot of cleavage, a woman's dress, and he'll put it on his sort of very hairy male Middle Eastern kind of good shape, buff, real peck, peck muscle body. And he has a big beard and he wears a lot of lipstick. And then someone, he'll put that image, he'll post a picture like that on Instagram. And then someone will always comment and be like, that dress looks terrible on you. Or you'd look better with no body hair. Or you're gross or something like that. And then his response is always like, he's, he always manages to center it back on the person saying that and describing how it's, that's saying things like that is really an expression of their pain from them of how they are in a prison and how everything he does, he does it for those people who say that. He does it to free them because like the people in the fucking pride parade, he doesn't do it for them because those people are already out of the prison, you know? I mean, secretly he does it for them because the people in the pride parade are victims to a bunch of fucking violence all the time by the people who are in, in the mental prison. But he does it to get the last people out of the mental prison. And it's just like the way he talks about the pain and the just the small-mindedness and the small-heartedness of the people who cannot open their minds to understanding that a sort of Middle Eastern looking fella with a lots of chest hair can wear a sequins dress with big cleavage. Like the fella is crazy looking, don't get me wrong. The, the fella is absolutely crazy looking, but he's a hero, you know? Like he's a hero, bro. He's walking on the street, cobblestone street, high heels. You think he wants to wear high heels on that cobblestone street? You think he wants to fucking wear the sequence dress every single day? No, dude. It's probably uncomfortable as shit, dude. He wants to wear sweats like everyone else, but he's a hero. And he does the work to free us all out of this prison. Goddamn, dude. And that's Doja Cat, man. That's why Doja Cat has to dress up as a fucking blood-soaked feminist demon. Because you have to travel really far out of prison to make it clear to everyone that it's okay to walk 500 feet out of the prison. You know? God, it's beautiful. These are the heroes, you know? Okay, so speaking of heroes, um, we're now going to drink sparkling water. And this was given to me by a hero, and her name is Lilith. And... She gave me four cans of sparkling water. These are probiotics. The, 
the brand is called Bear's Fruit. And Bear's Fruit, when I read it, I thought of the word bear like the animal. And I was like, that's kind of a cool name. Bear's Fruit Sparkling Water. But then when I thought about it just now, when I was when I took them out of the fridge, for the first time I realized that it's like Bear's Fruit has a very Christian. It's 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 there's a second meaning. It's not just bear, like it's not fruit that belongs to a bear. It's also well, I mean, it is because there's a, an apostrophe. It's bears as in possessive bears. But bears fruit is like also, I don't know, there's something Christian-y about that, those words. So anyway, yeah, Lilith is a hero because she used to, she, she's got some <laughs> real dysregulated emotions and she's working on herself very, very hard. And these days, her dysregulated emotions are much more regulated. So, and that makes my life a lot easier. So, yeah, this is watermelon. Watermelon mint. Ooh, watermelon mint. Secretly, two things I don't like, kind of. I mean, that's not... I, I think mint... Mint belongs in toothpaste to me. And watermelon as a beverage is also bad for me. And then probiotics, honestly... That sparkling waters that are probiotic all have a thick yeast infection quality to them. So um, you're going to hit me with watermelon, mint, and uh, probiotics in one drink here. So very, very low expectations on this one. Uh, let's open it. Let's smell it. Okay. Smells a little bit like wet cardboard. Let's taste it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's not good. That's not good at all. Yeah, I don't want to drink that. Yeah, I don't want to drink that. That doesn't taste good. But I think that's just I have a bias against mint. It doesn't really have like a terrible probiotic quality like some probiotic sparkling waters do. So that's going to be a 4 out of 10. Because like if I was thirsty, I could chug that thing. Um, yeah, did I have anything else to say about all of that? I don't know, man. I love Doja Cat. Um, last episode I talked about, I last episode I talked at length about white, tra uh, white trash people and a fella who ordered a Jack and Roses for me. And I, I talked, it's funny, sometimes I talk about something for so long that and somehow I forget to make the point I went into it trying to make. And what I think is fascinating, and let's let me now make it as a 30-second point because I already talked about it for 30 minutes. A few weeks ago at this point, I'm at work and a fella ordered once ordered a drink for me and he goes, I want a, a Jack and Roses. And I don't know what roses means. And so I'm like, what's roses? Is that flowers? Or are you talking about four roses of whiskey? Or like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. And he just goes, roses. And he says it over and over. And that's, to me, that's fascinating. Because it zooms in on, it highlights, it shines a light upon this ability or inability of communication when there is a fucking language barrier. And there's a there's a thing that happens when you at it's look, I moved to China when I was 19 and I did not speak Chinese and 
there's people, young people in China speak pretty good English, but a lot of times you're fucking struggling to communicate. And there's something about meeting people from different places and trying to communicate when communication is hard, where you develop this ability to, you say something and you look in their eyes and you try to decide if they know what you're talking about or not. And you make a judgment call and you're like, nah, this fella has no idea what I'm talking about. And then you don't say the same thing. Instead, you rack your brain, your stupid little brain, you rack your brain for a synonym. You try to think of a different way to say the same thing to maximize your probability of being understood. And this is like, I'm not saying I'm smarter than anyone. I'm saying this is survival. I'm saying I'm out there. It's China. I don't know how to communicate. I'm hungry. I'm trying to get food. I'm saying, can I get food? The person doesn't understand what I'm saying. So I'm like, okay, hungry. Point to my belly. Choo-choo. Chewing with my mouth. Food. I want to swallow something. And you just say it in a different way. And then I find it so, as someone who has spent so much of my life struggling to communicate, struggling to be understood, Someone who, <laughs> someone who has spent so much time not being understood. I find it so fascinating to talk to. It's also related to big country, small country. When you're from a small country, you just have to speak upward. You have to speak up to the people above you. You have to speak like the big country people are towering over you and you're a small country person and you have to like describe, you have to learn how to describe your own stuff. You can't assume anything. You can't assume that people understand anything you're saying because you're from a small country that no one has even really heard of, that no one could fucking pinpoint on a map. So it's small country stuff. It's like you, do, you it's a lack of confidence. It's a forcing you to learn how to explain yourself. It's a forcing you to learn how to deal with communication issues. And then this big country, America, China in some respect, but really the biggest of big countries, the biggest country is America. It's not the biggest country by area. It's not the biggest square fucking mile country. It's not the biggest population, but it's the biggest country. You know, America's a big country. It's the biggest country. It's Americans have this thing where they say, oh, we're number one. And then liberals like to make fun of themselves being like, haha, people think we're number one. We're not number one in anything except school shootings. But it's not that America is number one. It's that America is the biggest country. And big country is funny to me because it big country goes hand in hand with Never being forced to learn how to explain yourself and never being like <clears throat> this fella a few weeks ago who looks me in the eye and says, I want a Jack and Roses. And then I'm like, I don't know what that means. And he goes, Jack and Roses. And I'm like, what's roses? Like you want rose petals? You want fucking flowers? Like you think I have flowers, fresh flowers behind the bar as a garnish? Is that something people do now? Are we behind the curve that we don't have fresh flowers behind the bar? Like that I don't have a fucking bulb, a rose bulb to put in your whiskey? Are we, am I, I'm so sorry I don't have that. I, you must have been to some really cool cocktail lounges. And he's like, Jack and roses. I want roses. And I'm like, what's roses? And he's like, roses. And I'm like, what's roses? And he goes, 
roses. And then what the Americans do, this is so stupid and rude to say the Americans, what the big country Americans, not all Americans are big country Americans. Some Americans are enlightened. Most, almost all Americans are enlightened. But there are some big country Americans left. And when the big country American isn't understood, he will say the thing he said and he will not change out any of the words, but he will modulate the volume. He will say it louder. And this is an old, well, you know, well-documented thing, you know, coming to America. There's Eddie Murphy movies about this, you know? You just, you're not understood. People don't understand English, so you just yell it, hoping that then they'll understand. And I just, when I'm actually, like, it's a trope. It's a well, sort of, it's an old kind of boring trope to be like, haha, you just, people don't speak English, so you speak English to them, and then they don't get you, and then, so you yell the English, and then you think they're going to understand you. It's a, it's not that interesting to talk about anymore, but sometimes you fucking run into one of these people, and it's like, wow, you guys, big country Americans still exist. Okay, rent over. That's, it's just funny, man, because I was, that's what I wanted to say last episode, and I forgot. It's like the most, it's the ultimate symptom of never having left your village. Anyway, let's let's review another water. So Lilith gave me fucking four of these bad boys. And I think I'm just going to review two of them now and then save two for next week. So Bear's Fruit Sparkling Water with Probiotics. This one, check this out. Watermelon mint made me I low expectations. This one, high expectations. Listen to this. Blackberry sage. Oh, my God. Here's the thing. I'm also a little village bumpkin. I don't actually know what sage is, you know? Let's smell it. Am I about to learn what sage is? I mean, is it, it's an herb. You know, it's probably purple. But, like, what is it, though? Or, like, what does it smell like? Oh, that's good. Mmm, that is good. Mmm, fuck, that's good. That's a 9 out of 10. Lilith, that's a goddamn 9 out of 10 there. I love that. Um, Not knowing what sage is reminds me of like, or it's like, it's very, it's interesting. It's interesting what's, what's embarrassing because I remember being a kid and when I was 15 or 16, I met Hannah Fierroch. The my the sort of my the first girlfriend I nah that's sort of the second serious girlfriend I ever had but but um the most serious early life girlfriend and this girl that broke my heart and and a lot of things about her were very shame like I learned to be ashamed of myself with her like before her I was very confident I think and then with her she taught me how much there was about me that I should be ashamed of. And I remember um, being sort of from a small village and wanting to just gravitating towards the idea of a big city and wanting to be from a big city and wanting to be well-read and wanting to be smart and wanting to read books and wanting people to think that I was smart and wanting people to think that I was from a big city. And those are like the ideas that I put together in my head and what I wanted to like travel towards. And then her, I would... I stayed at her house a lot because her parents had this huge house, this big garden. 
and they were both, her dad was a professor and her mom was a PhD, a person with getting a PhD. And they were both teaching, like her, her dad was teaching, he was a professor in mathematics and her mom was um, just like this incredible sort of liberal, like liberal arts, um, just like comparative literature and and just just literary history, just like so many. She was such an expert on so many cool writers and so many cool things. And I was so smitten with the fact that you could have parents that were so smart and that had so much cool shit to say about everything. And then I remember just wanting to impress her parents because they were university people and they were so they were just like these true intellectuals and everything about their life was so like free and open and they like had money and they had a big house and they always had guests staying at the house and everything about it was just so cool and it was like everything I wanted and then there was this one moment one time when they were cooking and because I would eat three meals a day at that house you know because it was like this big house where people just wake up and you you come downstairs and all these people are at the table because they they're just bedrooms everywhere with like traveling intellectuals that are just visiting scholars, just vic- visiting lecturers that are just speaking about their ideas, and everyone is just talking about their work, and all their work is like fucking thinking work, and you just sit there and you feel so intellectually small. And I probably talked. You know, I probably spoke at the table and I probably shouldn't have. And I probably didn't know how embarrassing I was. But Hannah Firo, she was always trying to teach me how embarrassing I was. And that's the kind of girlfriend she was. And this one time there was a dinner being prepared and there are all these intellectuals and there are all these people that know everything. And her mother, Hannah's mother, she told me to go out into the backyard and she told me like, how they had a this garden herb garden in the back vegetable and herb garden and she told me that she needed like three herbs so she's cooking and she's got all these pots and pans and she sends me out into the garden to get these three herbs and i'm like okay cool and i step outside and i stand there and i'm like looking at the herbs i realize i have no fucking idea what herbs are <laughs> it's like i'm both from a village I'm from like the rural part of Sweden where we are such like dirt-covered fucking trash people. But I'm also like, it's interesting how circular it is because it's like the wealthy big city people who are like enlightened, they exist in a less broken food system. But like poor people who literally almost live on farms, who live close to farms, you know, the Stockton of Sweden. People who live in the Stockton of Sweden live, you know, a stone's throw from where all the food, all the fresh, organic, real food of America is, is, is grown. But they exist, they're poor people. So they exist in a broken food system. So they could not actually identify any fresh fruit to save the life of them, you know? The, all they know is McDonald's. All I knew was Burger King. Me and Sebastian, we'd get kebab pizzas and Burger King, you know? It's all we knew. And we'd go to the candy store and we'd drink like an entire big bottle of Coca-Cola and watch fucking Japanese horror movies. That's my whole youth. Just like him bullying me that I don't know enough about history. 
watching Japanese horror movies, drinking big bottles of Coca-Cola, eating candy, fucking having pizza, being really pissed off when someone asks us to eat a home-cooked meal because we're so fucking contrarian and we just want kebab pizza every single fucking day. And it's like, I step out into Hanafiro's herb garden and I stand there and I realize I don't know how to identify herbs and she has asked me to retrieve three herbs to help with the cooking. And Hannah steps out behind me and she can tell that I don't know. And, and I can tell, she doesn't even say it. She never even has to use her language, but she just, with her body, lets me know that she is mortified that I don't know any of this, that I am so unknowing, that I am so embarrassing, and I don't know about food, and I don't know about real stuff, that I don't, that, and, and so she makes it known to me, without words, that she wants to hide from her, hide this from her parents, the fact that I am so embarrassing. It's basically a step aside, please, so I can do it so that they won't know that you are this embarrassing. And she grabs the herbs and I follow her, you know? And she lets it, she makes it known to me that it's very important that people don't find out the truth about me, you know? It is very important to hide how embarrassing I am. I don't know what sage is. You know, I could not identify sage. <laughs> oh, God. And I go back to the dinner table and I don't know, you know, I don't know Michel Foucault and I don't know how to identify sage, you know, and you think those are, I thought those were opposites. I thought if you read a book, you don't know about food, but it, but, but there was a mingling there. I learned to mingle those things. And that's how I became a pretentious, pretentious piece of shit. You know? Anyway, fucking menstrual taboos, you know? What are we gonna do? Fucking menstrual taboo. Yeah. I don't know. I think the episode is over. It's kind of late at night now. I gotta go to bed. I love you guys, and, and thank you for listening.